Citizens, I am convening a meeting of the two in popular front as from now. Some massive common. The guy's beckoning his dog over towards me. The only man in, currently in Tooting fear of dogs. <laughs> it is remarkable. It's like 17 acres the other direction, there, and there's like 10 foot this way. He's like, go and get that. Oh boy, get those two weirdos by, by the lighter. <laughs> Welcome to Savlon Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. Steve Walsh. Hello. We're on Tooting Common. Tooting Commons, plural, aren't Tooting it? Commons. We're taking you on a walking tour today of Tooting. Works perfectly from your house or uh, on the way to work, just listen. But you could also follow it. Yep, Google Maps. Yeah, if you go to southlandhardcore.com and click map, you can uh, see all the places we talk about on the show. And you can follow this walking trail with some uh, coloured pins. We're also on the internet at SLHC on Twitter. SLAC on Instagram, although I've forgotten my phone today, so there won't be any pictures of tooting. Facebook.com slash SouthlandHardcore. You can email us at SouthlandHardcore at gmail.com. Yeah, tell us what we left off of our tooting roundup. The fountain at Tooting Beck Lido is in full flow, as listeners might be able to hear. That's a train down past. <laughs> it sounds like we've got like a sound effects record, and we're trying to just like make people believe we're in Tooting Beck, and we're not. <laughs> <laughs> One of those key rings that make like explosions, machine gun noises, isn't it? Yeah, Xavier's toy. Xavier's got this like steering wheel toy, and I'm just they're just hitting buttons so quickly. It's just like <laughs> here's our home. Here's our <laughs> ho ho ho. <laughs> Great fun. If you've broken your daughter's steering wheel by <laughs> trying to make it into uh, a rap MC. Go to uh, the Amazon Inc. at Southland Hardcore.com and replace it, hopefully, without your other half realising what you've done. And you'll give us a little kickback. In, in all seriousness, it does uh, help fund the show uh, using the Amazon Link. Thanks to everyone that does, big or small. Steve, do you want to mention a big purchase recently? Big so, in terms of size and expense. Someone bought a telly that's about the same size as my flat. 50-inch television. Uh, our very own Sarah Brady. <laughs> what's nice about that is it's uh, obscure inside podcasting <laughs> reference so good, good I'm not going to explain it though <laughs> and it's ungoogleable so you'll never know and your pal our pal one time guest Rosie bought a spin dryer her sister did so you can make an argument that through Rosie uh, a spin dryer was purchased Jessica might have bought a telly as well you know, is she a spin dryer the same as a tumble dryer no I think it's uh, more industrial. <laughs> what is she in the, in the uh, drying industry? You see, you say this, but she works in the, with garments. So, in a way, yes. I say, if anyone wants to tune into uh, Rosie and Jessica's Day of Fun podcast that you listen to regularly, Steve, don't yeah, you? all the time. There's probably an episode called like Spin Dryers and Televisions. <laughs> That's the best place to start. <laughs> They're on iTunes and other internet places. This is both of our first trips to the Lido, isn't it? It You're is. You're probably more of a Brockwell Lido kid, aren't you? It's my local Lido. I don't want to be taking sides against your local Lido. We know how that ends up. It's 107 years old, Steve. Mixed bathing since 1931. And it's home to SLSC. I saw that. 
and I was, I was trying to find their logo just to sort of see what they've done. I don't think anything as uh, bombastic as us. They've got they've not got Iron Pomery on it. Imagine if we found their logo; it's just all vertical lines. I'm like, ah, oh, Pomery. A bit concerning. The South London Swimming Club, of course, Steve. I was thinking that maybe we'd scale the walls here and uh, have a proper look round. And if anyone pulled us over, we'd be like, we're from SLHC, and hope hope they misheard us. <laughs> but I think they take one look at me and go, uh, he doesn't look like a swimmer. You say that, Steve, but they're very inclusive. Okay, that Me- inclusive. Members from zero to ninety, apparently. From zero, babies, in feti, water. <laughs> it's the largest swimming pool by surface area in the United Kingdom. Outdoors, yeah. Hundred yards by thirty-three yards. I imagine, right? My guess, Steve, is that because that it was probably built before swimming pools were ever small. The standard size was smaller. I suppose being outside as well and next to a common space is less of a consideration isn't it? it's not like you're, you're you know the swimming baths that we know were Victorian buildings tucked in alongside houses and on roads whereas here you've got nothing but space to play with have you you know it's so big that I can you know look at it here there's a, the, uh, Britain's largest outdoor swimming pool and a little swimming pool next to it and a fountain they've just got nothing but space they're just trying to find you know more and more ways to uh, fill things with water the Lido was originally known as the Tooting Bathing Lake and was the idea of a local rector who proposed the work as a way to uh, occupy unemployed local men. I mean, at the moment, we've got uh, a crisis in the country in terms of employment and the economy. There's less of a demand for bathing lakes, though. But, you know, the equivalent... Well, you know, let's work around these things. But it's what is uh, the equivalent? Like podcast studios? <laughs> <laughs> but it's in tremendous... Uh, tremendous, Nick. Yeah, it is. Massive fences all around it to stop the likes of us climbing over and wandering. Yeah, there's, it's used. That's yeah, why yeah. It's, not, yeah. it's not like a derelict... No, lighter. absolutely not. And having, like, an active club attached is going to mean that, you know, you've got people prepared to step in if things need to be done. Is there paddling allowed to do? Can you come in for a day with a family? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. I'd imagine it'd be like any other swimming pool. You know when they have like uh, family fun days and splash time, uh, yeah, but then yeah, other yeah. times just like lane swimming. Just aerobics. Don't mess about. Yeah. Right, shall we uh, move through the commons, Steve? Let's. Commons mostly for dog walkers. Yeah, this time of night as well. I mean, we're going round on a Sunday evening, so like, you know the families also it's a pretty miserable day so the families that would normally be picnicking and frolicking have gone home there's a uh, the goals there there and stuff yeah they you know having said that there were some kids playing football it looked Perfect like quite organized well. didn't it yeah i was while i was waiting for you steve i was sit, standing there squashing berries with my feet stomping berries it's great fun you also uh lined up your favorites to dash at me as i approached as well wasn't it? yeah well, one, one right in the eye just uh, <laughs> yeah. why are you squinting <laughs> my first visits to Tootin were here Tootin Beck Athletics track because uh, at school we famously had no kind of grounds really not famously but we used to we, couldn't, we didn't even do PE at school <laughs> we did do PE in the gym but games we had to get a bus to Sydenham to go to some playing fields so obviously we had to uh, travel for sports day as well and we came here so this is uh, bringing back some memories 
you're surprised at how few rows of seats there are. You imagined it being a bit sort of... Yeah, I mean, now that I'm looking at it, it does, like, yeah, I suppose it was only three rows. This looks to me in. like exactly the number of seats you would expect to find the two in Becker Flex, right? There were far too many for our sports day. <laughs> Not a lot of parents turned up. But yeah, over there, Steve uh, did uh, long jump first year. Were you good? I imagine you've been good at long jump. No, nah, because I'm so slow and I can't jump very far. So no. Yeah, the two elements long, you really need, so yeah. You just sort of fall over strategically and... I didn't podium. <laughs> and uh, second year I did shot put. Just because I wanted to pick something that you could just quickly do your free heavy throws and just go and sit down for the rest of the day. And uh, I don't remember doing anything else the, other, the rest of the years. I reckon we're only here the first four years, probably not the fifth year. This is no good for listeners. But is that a hurdle over there? Yeah, I'll tell you what. Yeah, when I was in year a nine, a full-size hurdle. Yeah, there were a load of hurdles. There were hurdles lined up on the side, and I was just running in the middle here, like you got this, you know, standard uh, flex track set up with all your uh, field events in the middle. And there were some uh, hurdles lined up, and I was running along, just jumping over the hurdles, uh, yeah. just a you know walking pace. And there's like a tannoy system, and the deputy head was like, Matt and <laughs> Some for some reason seemed to know everyone's name in a school of like 500 kids. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I was ashamed not to cross the track and uh, go and sit back down. But no, my highlights, Steve, won't mean much to people who didn't go to London Nautical. But, uh, and even some that did. <laughs> Mr. Badiani, right, in a four-stripe Adidas tracksuit that said Atlas on it in the Adidas font. <laughs> and uh, this teacher I really hated, Mr. Yelland. Uh, he phoned my parents once because I refused to admit that I was swinging on my chair. I wasn't. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> just, just to reiterate even now <laughs> you refuse to accept you yeah I wasn't I wasn't uh, and that's what, one of my favourite pastimes what had he seen that had made him think that you were I don't really know to be honest he was such a I've got a beeper, I've got a <laughs> yeah he uh, was seen at the station on the way in having not paid his fare getting a fine brilliant yeah so, it was a long way for people to come so you're one of your all-time highlights from school sports day was on the way you saw a teacher you didn't like get a fine for uh fair evasion fair enough <laughs> no finally right my best pal at school uh peter bingham we're in a band together and uh on my gcse recordings he played uh guitar and uh well i mean i was meant to have, i played the guitar but he played the better guitar <laughs> lead guitar and uh he sang on... I did a day trip cover and he sang. So and if he's singing and playing guitar, what is your role in this? I was playing bass on one of them and I played guitar on the other. And I got a C, Steve, so, you know, Good everybody stuff. needs someone. It was a strong uh, composition. And, uh, yeah, he... Uh, we were about to do sports day, right? It was a quite, you know... He was kind of critical you Kirk Van Houten. Can I borrow a feeling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second to think of what yeah, Milhouse's so, dad's name is in the Simpsons, fun, but that yeah. is essentially what you Mil- did. I think you should have just gone with Milhouse's dad. <laughs> yeah, so he was uh, like he's my best pal at school, and uh, in I suppose year ten, like he's down to do the eight hundred meters, and uh, he just opens up his bag and he's got a pair of spikes. And we're like, what? didn't even realize he had any. He's like, all right, does like you know they do. I don't know if they're the fire uh, starting pistol or what, but start the race, and he whip. Like, by the time he's got 100 metres to go, people were, like, 150 metres behind him. <laughs> he won the race by, like, over 200 metres. It was amazing. And I remember, like, being, like, so proud of him. He was, like, an all-rounder. He got the highest mark in the country in nautical studies. <laughs> like, he he's could a, sail. He so, was, he's, like... He's, he's, he got an A in music, for example. Yeah. Guitar, spikes, nautical studies. He's a triple threat. We'll continue down Tootenbeck Road. 
and hopefully it will stop raining, Steve, when we get to our next checkpoint. So we pulled up at Two in Beck station, and opposite is the Wheat Sheep, which is a pub that we've been to a few times ourselves, isn't it? And recently made the news, you know, every time they want to close a pub down and make a Tesco, people go mental, don't they? <laughs> Sadiq Khan got involved, the uh, local MP, who uh, went to school around the corner, which we'll get to in a minute. And uh, yeah, they won the case, and now it's still the Wheat Sheaf. Busy. You go yeah, in there, very it's mobbed, so busy. it's not a case More of, people uh, than there were in there the last time I went on a Sunday evening. You know, before it was under threat. That wasn't where we did the quiz that time, was it? Uh, that was fair no, that way. wasn't when we yeah, did the quiz, yeah. no. Yeah. Oh, no, that was called the castle, maybe? As you said earlier, it's a pretty sort of cold and wet Sunday evening. It's a sort of Sunday evening you do want to go to a nice pub with comfy chairs and mm. uh, just say, you know, boil. Families in the back room. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's what you're into. But, yeah, we're a few doors down now in Chicken Cottage. And, you know, the flagship... Is it a flagship store? It's got to be in it. I mean, that's that's why we're here basically because it is a, it's kind of a local landmark, isn't it? it when the first time I came to two in in recent times, it was the thing that stood out most for me. Just like look at the size of that chicken shop. It is remarkable. See, you know my feeling, Steve, on Armand's sake. Yeah. You know, I do think people can make a lot of local restaurants. You know, make them to be more important than they are. Yeah. But you, we had to eat, and I've just had a chicken sandwich and uh, chips. And I ordered a latte here. <laughs> and that's what they gave you? And they, get, they had three attempts at making a latte, and the guy comes back and goes, it's just hot milk coming out. And I think probably that's because a hot latte is mostly hot milk. Yeah. But I didn't say that. I said, I'll have that then. And he gave me a kind of Tango brand slush puppy. <laughs> There's a girl in there, working in there. And I felt quite bad for her, because she clearly don't want to work with She's having a rough time there. She was taking someone's order, and they were being quite thick and slow. And then she asked them what drink they want, and they asked if they could have coleslaw instead. <laughs> so the last thing you want, you did a Sunday night shift at Kit Cottage. Do you know what I mean? There's no button for that, is there? There's no button where you sort of go, I'll just substitute uh, coleslaw in for a drink. Hassan, our friend who was on the boxing episode and Emmanuel School episode, he was meant to be on today, but his dad's not wrong. Get well soon, Mr. Uh, oh no, I can't say his last name, can I? <laughs> Get well soon, my son's dad. He once told me that this branch was opened by a Pakistani cricketer. And uh, I don't know if he was joking or not, right? But they do sell mini cricket, chicken cottage cricket bats. Do they? On the, uh, yeah, on the counter. And mini footballs. How much? One pound. And the, the, guy, the guy who served me made a joke that I could hit my child with it. Like, if the guy I like. <laughs> You're up there so long, he managed to find out about Xavier, he's just sharing <laughs> stories about your life. As we sat down in the warm, Steve, I used the term loosely, it's only because I've got a thermal, uh, a child ski jacket on, but I'm warm. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm getting that, um, I'm not getting brain freeze, I'm getting throat freeze. <laughs> lung freeze. Why has it got in my lungs? <laughs> yeah, it's, maybe you can give us some history. Tooting's one of those places where the meaning of the name is disputed which seems odd because with the different theories it looks like surely there's one that you can agree on um, it could mean the people of Tota where Tota may have been a local Anglo-Saxon chieftain it could have been derived from an old meaning of the verb to tout to look out there might have been a watchtower here and the people of Tooting might have been the people of the watchtower 
on the side of uh, Wandsworth Town Hall, they have the image of a visiting archbishop meeting people from the Tottings tribe. So surely that's one. If it's on the side of the town hall, if you're making an image of a particular thing in history, that's the one, isn't it? You say that, but you mentioned Southwark Council putting a plaque up on London Bridge, sorry, Southwark Bridge, uh, where uh, Bill Sykes killed Nancy <laughs> in, in Oliver Twist, the book. And of course, that was not the case. No. So, And also, was there not a re- news, recent news story about Southwark Council misspelling Little Dorrit? That does ring a bell. Dorrit, Little Dorrit Court, or whatever. Right. And they spelled Dorrit wrong. So yeah, maybe don't trust local government. It does seem like the area was defined after the Norman Conquest, where Tooting and Tooting Beck became these two distinct areas. Tooting itself, or Tooting Graveney, as it's known, uh, is gifted to a noble Norman family called the Graveneys, while Tooting Beck gets its name from the fact that that particular area was gifted to a French... Abbey in Normandy, Beck Abbey, and the visiting Archbishop on the side of Wands of Town Hall is Anselm, who was the second Archbishop of Canterbury, appointed in 1098, who became known in England from his visits to the church's property in London. So it would have been Anselm's visits to Tooting, and while he was here checking in with the, the church leaders in the UK that would have sort of secured his position as the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is quite interesting. But I always wondered where um, Tootin Beck has got his name from, because it's not it's unique, isn't it? It's not one of those things where... There are no other Becks. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, usually if something is uh, has Beck in the name, uh, it refers to a river. So we have, like, Burbeck or Warbeck. It's usually... Yeah, has a K on the end. Yeah, and that's the thing. So I think I always assumed they were saying to do with a river nearby, but it's not. It's uh, named after a French abbey. We're standing outside Springfield University Hospital, formerly Surrey County Lunatic Asylum for paupers. And uh, we have been making some sort of not-so-sensitive jokes about mental health, Steve, just then. But I think I've spooked you, haven't I? <laughs> well, it's when you pointed out that there have been attacks around the centre. Yeah, well, essentially, we're, we're standing. Someone, this is yeah. the first time we're standing outside a uh, medium security psychiatric hold- unit. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to contaminationzone.com, right, they've got some photos. I'm never off it. Got <laughs> they, it tabbed. They refer to uh, oh, there's someone standing in the window there looking out. Not even at the in the asylum in the uh, hospital. <laughs> Just a neighbour. Not even and a pauper. A walking, see, the thing is, this guy walking out. There have been people escaping from it. The right. gates are open. And like people have you know, stabbed in Clapham Common by an escapee. Uh, I've lost my train of thought, Steve. Hey! <laughs> Contaminationzone.com. They've got a photo gallery on there of, um, I don't know, they refer to it as like an abandoned asylum. And there's photos of like, you know, there's creepy photos of like smashed picture frames and, you know, tipped over beds and stuff. Why? Yeah, but the thing is, it's clearly a functioning hospital, so yeah. I'm not sure if there was a You look at it and you go, this isn't... When, uh... Just everyone, though. It's just... It's <laughs> getting the life out of me. What's this door for? <laughs> yeah, what is this? There's a gate that just leads to a road, it looks like. Yeah. 
it's twilight as well, so it is, uh, you know, the scariest time of all, isn't it? We've also just come past Ernest Bevin College, formerly Ernest Bevin School, I reckon. Hillcroft School also. Outstanding. Is it? Yeah, they're the big sign oh, wow. outside. That is impressive. We are an outstanding school. I mean, in, that's, in today's Ofsted framework. That's a good thing to celebrate, but they've done it in a really permanent manner. Like, if it does drop down towards... Is it not one of those canvas banners? Nah, it's like etched onto the side of the school. Uh, if they do drop down to... What's the... Good. Me- good. You know. It's like a tattoo you regret, isn't it? There'll be someone up there with a uh, chisel. <laughs> Previously outstanding. Uh, alumni, or alumnus... Alumnus include Lenny James, actor from Snatch, which uh, partly shot at Tootenbeck Lido, apparently. That's right, yeah. The um, scene in the swimming pool, obviously. Yeah, but... Oh, what, just the underwater shot, you mean? Yeah, apparently, yeah. Oh, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, Brad Pitt. Yeah. All right. Uh, Sean Davis, who played for Tottenham, Portsmouth, Fulham, and the other 21s. And probably most famously, Jimmy White and also Tony Mio. Tell me about Jimmy White, Steve. Jimmy White was, he was like the people's champion in the 80s. He was a brilliant snooker player. And he, I think he got to the world uh, final like six times. And there was one time when he was definitely going to win. He was like, you know, well up at the interval. And he just lost. And it was really... Um, odd. It's an extraordinary record, and it's six final, six finals, no wins. Yeah, yeah. In any, uh, is there an equivalent in any other sport? <laughs> Steve just leant on a post, and it's rocked, and now we're terrified. <laughs> we're going to keep walking. We're going to walk away from the. Uh, I mean, there's old pavilion place, Holmbury Development. Well, it sounds like a halfway house, Steve. <laughs> Uh, have we ever done a walk-in talking bit but we need to get away from it because it's just a cul-de-sac isn't it <laughs> suddenly it does feel like uh, sorry lunatic asylum well, it's just when that thing bit, I don't want uh, I don't want to be breaking parts of buildings that's you know one of my rules I remember Tony Mio as well yeah Tony Mio was a top snooker player also yeah absolutely I mean I don't follow snooker and also I'm not as old as uh, you know when these guys were I don't know, what's the, what's the colloquial phrase? Hotting balls. <laughs> but they used to skip school together, uh, Ernest Bevin, to go and play snooker. And Tony Mio was the... Are we being chased? <laughs> <laughs> what's that just a spare screeching? <laughs> Terrifying, look at that car, Steve. Ghost car. <laughs> he was the youngest ever uh, 147... Look at the moon! 147 break. Tony Mio. Oh, right. That's coming for us. <laughs> yeah, so we'll get back onto the main road, Steve, I think. would be wise, wouldn't it? Uh, I'm we just need witnesses, essentially. We, we do, don't we? This could be the last, could be like a Blair Witch episode, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. We did find this uh, MP3. <laughs> Herzog's there uh, with the headphones on, saying to uh, Never oh, listen to don't. this podcast ever. Red twenty, red eighteen, yellow twenty-one, white seventy-five, white seventy-six. So we're now in the Gala Bingo Hall, which is, was previously the Granada, a cinema and also a theatre. 
music venue. We're in the Hall of Mirrors, Steve. It's just a tremendous space. The whole building, from top to bottom, is just full of uh, incredible features. And yeah, it says there's a thing, you know, as we go up the stairs away from the hall itself, there's a bit that says circle and hall of mirrors. And you go, that's a nice detail they've left on. But obviously, there's going to be a hall of mirrors. And then there is a hall of mirrors. Yeah, I mean, it's been described as the most beautiful cinema in Britain. I mean, it's not a cinema, but you know, it's just the level of detail with everything there, the lights and stuff. And we wandered through the bingo hall. And, uh, you know, I've never been in the bingo hall before. No. But I can't imagine many of them look as beautiful as this. When we went into the bingo hall, I thought this is going to be quite grim and oppressive and a bit grimy. But they've done a marvellous job in maintaining, like, everything's so clean and looks so nice. It just, uh, yeah, it's tremendous. Yeah, you know, space. be light fitting. We'll put a link on the Twitter account and on the website to uh, some, you know, real high quality photos of the place. It's the first building of its type to get Grade One listed status, oh, wow. which means it's basically the same status as the Tower of London, Buckingham Palace, Stonehenge. That's fair. You know, That's about the right, highest right. level yeah. of. And you know, people often kind of fetishise old cinemas don't they like yeah let's talk about you know we must keep the coronet open yeah i don't think we necessarily have to i'm not saying knock it down yeah yeah uh you know because i'm not trying to hand anything over to developers yeah but this is really does stand out doesn't it and you could argue that the coronet has moved so far away from its original Mm. purpose that it's not really what it was anymore so you know as i say i don't want to lose it but this on the other hand is a completely different situation isn't it yeah once sold uh three million tickets a year been a bingo hall since 1991 after it closed in the mid 70s. Frank Sinatra played it in 1953. It was a very good year. <laughs> we'll have a look at the seats in the circle and uh, the just the, the amount of space and seating that they've got and has been maintained as well. Mm. It's not. It's so, I mean, curtained off or closed off. If this was a music venue or you know theatre, it would it it could compete with anything, couldn't it? Yeah. 1963, Steve, the Beatles played here, supported by Roy Orbison. They only played seven songs, weirdly. Some other guy, do you want to know a secret? <laughs> Love Me Do, From Me To You, Please Please Me, I saw us under there and twist and shout. Just in case anyone listening really wanted to know that. <laughs> but, so in uh, April 2007, I presume this is not long after they got the listed status, I'm not quite sure though, they uh, restored the Wurlitzer. Right. You know, this is yeah, an yeah. organ pit somewhere. That's April 2007. July 2007, it flooded and ruined it. And then they've just, you know, obviously not... Can't go through that heartbreak again, can you? Nah. You know, they're not spending money, are they? But yeah, when it was a cinema, Steve, first film they ever showed was Ernst Lubitsch's uh, Monte Carlo. I don't know it. I've not seen it either. Nah. I've seen some, a couple of his films. And the final film they showed, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. That's not bad. It's, it's a bow out, out, out in it? Yeah, yeah. We were hoping to get a coffee in the Starbucks. And the only reason I mentioned the Starbucks is because Hassan, who, as we said previously, couldn't be here, used to go there all the time when he was a kid, when it was the record centre, and developed uh, the very damaging habit of buying records he's had uh, his whole life, <laughs> where he would have picked his uh, cast and Oasis records up. But, alas, it was closed. Despite the fact that the website assured us that it would be open to 8.30 even on Sundays. I'll probably get a coffee here, though, Steve, couldn't we? I mean, yeah, I won't, thinking. but obviously the most enticing no. thing about the place so far is that poster that said free roast dinner <laughs> if you play one one of our main event games. 
but it's not just the actual interiors. There's like so many little features, tables, and little internal elements just sort of knocking around that look original. It's really um, quite incredible. Yeah, well worth a visit. You can just we're sitting in this hall of mirrors. We're in a private room with like sitting on leather seats with a table. Nobody's come to bother us. You can literally just wander about the place. Yeah. The security is so lax. So Tooting has hosted musicians and pop stars, produced some, and inspired some as well. Hanoi Rocks are a band from Finland, but they wrote the song Tutinbeck Wreck after their experiences of living in Tuting in the 80s. Have you listened to it? It's pretty much as you'd imagine from a Finnish punk band. And the kitchens of distinction are from Tuting. So when they wrote on Tooting Broadway Station, very much from personal experience. They're a band I'd heard of but never heard. Good, though. Really um, a decent little uh, sort of uh, pop rock band. There's a song called Margaret's Injection, which was all about uh, giving Margaret Thatcher a lethal injection. So, you know, good. Have you mentioned that before on the show? Have I? I don't know, you're always talking I'm about I'm talking Thatcher. about Thatcher dying a lot, <laughs> not necessarily by the hand of pop stars. My favourite entertainer that comes from Tooting has got to be George Cole. Arthur Daly in Minder was born in South London. Such a beautiful thing for me. For a long time, when people ask what my favourite TV show was, I'd say Minder. But I stopped just because people just assume you're joking. <laughs> they assume that, that can't be the case. I you did, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, you just sort of go Minder and they go, no, really, what is it? And you go, it is Minder. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. Yes, uh, a tremendous television show. Like Only Fools and Horses, a lot of the early episodes punctuated with some like racism. So you have to sort of get right, past they, that. Yeah. yeah, you have to, not you know, it was the time all that yeah, right, business, right, right. but it was the time. Um Yeah, it was a brilliant show. Uh, designed as a vehicle for Dennis Waterman post the Sweeney. And the, the concept originally was gonna be that he was the minder to Arthur Daly, and Arthur Daly would be a minor character that would basically give him jobs that would enable him to get into various scrapes, uh, kiss women and punch men. And people go, this is brilliant. Never this, is, way around. This, is, this is Dennis Waterman, not kissing any men, not punching any women. What a show. <laughs> but from the first episode, it became obvious that Arthur Daly was the star of the show. And Dennis mm. Waterman was quite resentful about this towards the show's producers, but never to George Cole. They always had a, a wonderful uh, relationship. But he complained in later years that, you know, it's become the Arthur Daly show, to which I would say yes, and is much improved for that. Just little things that George Cole brought to the role. Um, the coat. Well, this is the thing. Famously... Uh, oh, did he really? Well, no... <laughs> You know, the, the the conceit of the show was that Arthur was a, a sort of spivvy gangster type, but not really involved. So he would need a bit of muscle to back him up if things got a bit nasty. When they shot the first episode, they had, you know, a very small budget. but So Arthur had a coat, a nice coat and a nice suit. But basically, the producer said to him, don't get that dirty or torn everything because we can't afford to replace it. So the idea was originally that Arthur and Terry would be a bit of a team. 
Uh, but George Cole went, well, how about any time there's trouble, I just immediately remove myself from the situation. So any time there's a fight, he just hides behind a car, which saves the coat, saves the, but also defines the character. Yeah. Arthur becomes this sort of weaselly coward, and it explains why he needs uh, this, this muscle next to him. And it was little decisions like that by George Cole throughout the series that created this uh, remarkable character and a yeah, tremendous TV show. You suggested doing a Minder special, which I loved earlier. It's all set in West London. Yeah. I'm tempted to go through 114 episodes and just find South London references and just, uh, you know. Yeah, I've got vague memories of Minder because my sister was in it, right? What? Yeah, Anna was in, she got a close up in Poirot. She was an extra. She went to the Penny Farthing Theatre School, which was just in the Aylesbury. Just uh, quickly, this isn't Aylesbury. Shane Ritchie Minder, is it? No, no. Good. I don't think so, anyway. This would have been about 1993. No, this is good, man. Yeah. Good, good. Um, so, yeah, she got, she was in Poirot, and my mum went with her, but my mum didn't end up being there for some reason at, like, a Greek or Italian wedding, because my sister's very ethnically ambiguous, despite the fact we have the same mother and father. And, uh, no, when my mum used to go play group, when she first had the both of us, people used to, like, you know, give her grief and stuff. Like, she was two different dads or whatever. Um, yeah, Anna's quite thin diesel, isn't she? Vin Diesel, I dare you. She's a bit yeah. the rock, isn't she? She could, you know. Yeah, she's a uh, Maori. Or Maui, which one is it? <laughs> can never remember. <laughs> yeah, so she got a close-up in uh, at this wedding in uh, Poirot. I can't remember the name of the episode. And in Minder, she's a group of schoolgirls crossing a road. And, yes. like, at the time, I remember thinking it was outrageous. She was getting, she was getting like, £60 for a day. To cross and the road. Apparently, they were eating, like, loads of croissants, my mum was saying. <laughs> and I'm, what am I getting? I'm picturing the Beano. But yeah, but I just I've got vague memories of him being like a kind of someone you were drawn to. Do you know what I mean? Quite a lovable character. Do yeah, you know what I mean, like, even though despite I don't have any memory of watching it really. There's a just to do a, a, a small mix up. Mix up with love joy in my mind. Yeah, because it's chances and you know fools and horses. While people sort of conflate those things. Um, yeah, I mean Arthur was a compelling character. I mean one of my favourite moments. Uh, well, I'll do well, my favourite Arthur Daly moment in any episode ever is a bit where he's paying someone, and he's just hand, he's just like counting money into their hand, and he sort of like just drops a note and closes the guy's hand and goes, "You'll have to count that because it's not all there." <laughs> <laughs> um, but another great moment is, as I say, the idea was always that he was a coward and you know he needed Terry to be the muscle. But there's a scene where he ends up in a police cell, and the police put like an informant in with him to try and get information out of him. And uh, the guy tries to get Arthur to turn on Terry. And Arthur like, stands up and it's this tremendous physical performance from George Cole where this guy, who is, like, as I say, a weaselly little scoundrel, suddenly stands up and sort of just fronts the guy. And he's like, you think I'm going to turn him? He grabs him and sort of like slams him against the wall. There's this great bit where uh, George Cole's like, so, uh, Arthur's so angry, grabs him, pushes him, and he bangs his head and he goes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you got me angry there. <laughs> and it's this great moment where you sort of see that he has got genuine sort of passion behind what he does and he won't turn on his friends. But when it comes down to it, he's still, you know, not quite the tough guy he'd like to think he is. Yeah, it's a tremendous show. I never watched uh, Citizen Smith growing up. I know of it, and I know the premise, and I know that Robert Lindsay's in it, and the guy he plays is like a revolutionary. But I never, wa- I don't think I've ever watched an episode of the show. I've watched a few in preparation. Yeah. Over the last year, uh, I've watched about four episodes. Yeah, Wolfie is his name. I mean, it's his nickname. He wears a beret. He's uh, part of the two in popular front. Power to the people. 
Uh, the opening credits, have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, outside tooting Broadway uh, you, you know enough of it from sort of popular culture, but Not I mean, really. I mean, I, stopped... I know it from watching it. Okay. Recently, I didn't really. You've never heard of it. Oh, yeah. maybe a little bit, but not not so much. But you know, it's always referencing local places. Yeah. You know, it's quite amusing. It's just standard kind of. Uh, it's created by John Sullivan. Yeah. Who uh, created Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, it stopped being broadcast in 1980. But I mean, the yeah, thing only about 1977 to 1980. Yeah. But the thing about the BBC in the 80s was they just it was a, a lot of it was repeats. So and this is before you had like extra channels and whatnot, but. So it was like on and around. I remember being on and around, but I never sort of made a point to yeah. watch it. Well, on Wikipedia, it refers to it being repeated in 1993. Right? Okay. So I wonder if there was a big gap even showing anyway. it. But yeah, I mean, it's quite amusing. You know, it's, it's so just like every other sitcom. Just very generic. Isn't it? Yeah, it's very just going to be so, a yeah. lot of sort of like but so sideways many, uh, looks and wordplay and just, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, dramatic irony. So we can walk and talk, Steve. We're not walking, we're sitting down. And I've, got a hot, I've got a hot chocolate orange. I mean, this is... It's a trick of the year. This is some decadent stuff we've got going on for a body. The elephant in the room is two in the Mitchum Football Club, isn't it? It's hard for us to say the name of the club in a way that Mishy would like. Yeah. Because you can't asterisk a word <laughs> when it's vocalised, unfortunately. But if you just hear us saying it as... Football Club. We're South London Hardcore. We both... Support Dulwich as our South London teams. Well, and I support West Ham, but we support Dulwich Hamlet as our South London team, don't we? We don't support Millwall, we don't support Palace, we don't support. But in a way, as you said, Steve, we support all of them, even Dial Square, even Woolwich Arsenal. (laughs) Yeah, as you said earlier, you know, we did an episode uh, about Woolwich Arsenal because of their origins, even though you're a Spurs fan. We'll talk about Millwall, even though I'm a West Ham fan. Um, so, you know, we'll talk about Two in the Mitchum, but not too much. No, Two in the Mitchum, I think we'll end up doing an episode on, so stay tuned for that. I like to think that we'll ease it in gradually now so that Mishy doesn't get furious mm. and then just do a whole episode and get him to just go into an apoplexy. I just like the idea that Mishy listens to the show. <laughs> I like to think he secretly listens. I've already mentioned Sean Davis, haven't I, Steve? You have. Another ex Tottenham player, Darren Bent, who got 13 caps for England and scored a ludicrous number of goals for particularly for Charlton but then also for Aston Villa uh, Tottenham a few his stats in terms of finishing were just phenomenal should have got more England caps I think wasn't he Sunderland after Spurs yeah he was Sunderland yeah because yeah. he missed, once missed two, two penalties against us because <laughs> the thing is he left in quite uh, acrimonious circumstances and I don't want to make this all about football but it was one of the most ridiculous transfers I've ever seen at Tottenham where we had Berbatov, Keane and Defoe and they thought you know what this team needs an £18 million pound exactly. cover finisher uh, yeah so he never really got the shot at Spurs and sort of rightly so then he kind of fluffed it a bit and he is kind of a limited player but he was he was a brilliant finisher I mean if he'd have been around in uh, the 90s or you know or any time before you know he would have got more in caps I think well I don't make a lot of sense in as they were bearing the strikers in. but you know what I mean this football <laughs> moved on a bit that's why he probably never really... He only got one big move, and that was to Tottenham. Whereas he might have uh, you know, ended up somewhere bigger in a different era. But yeah, uh, if Hassan had been on the show, he would have been talking about Darren Bent for many minutes because he's a huge <laughs> fan. Clinton Morrison, also from Tooting, got 36 caps for Ireland, Steve, That's due right. to his Irish grandmother. Clinton Van Morrison. So, uh, <laughs> he was known in the Emerald Isle. 
but yes, yeah, legitimate uh, call up. Well, it's one of those ones where you know it's been in the news with Jack Wilshire yeah, lately, yeah. and um, you know if you want to know my views on it, I agree with Jack Wilshire. Mm. You can click on my Twitter at Yids to see you know explanations of that. Well, the explanation is um, Jack Wilshire and you and me and anyone that has a shred of uh, logic or intelligence will go. The thing about international football is it's selecting players based on their nationality. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, a lot of people seem shocked that it could be in any so way. So when Jack Wilshire goes, uh, I think English people should play for England, that's not racist. <laughs> no. Or bigoted, or no. any of the other words I've used no. to describe someone saying something no. like, uh, you know. And then uh, it was twisted by newspapers Absolutely. saying, you know, he doesn't want anyone who wasn't born here to play for England. He didn't say that. He did it, not say that at all. If it wasn't an international break, that story would not have been picked up on. It's this silly Just, Just to clarify, in case there are people listening who are kind of bemused, haven't heard about it. You know, John Barnes moved to England when he was 12, played yeah. for England. Yeah, yeah. Mo Farron moved to England when he was a kid. Um, many other uh, people have done the same thing. The guy in question, uh, Januzaj, however that's pronounced, yeah, like that. Januzaj, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the guy that's been he, uh, he's moved to moved to England at sixteen as a professional footballer for football reasons. He's not even trying to play for England. He's not eligible to play for England. So the thing is, you know, this is the thing, Jack Walsh. We're talking about a player who's not even eligible, so he is obviously right about it. But you know, this is there's a huge difference, and I think people are doing people a huge disservice as well. You know, you hear people, read people going, you know, Germany have got Ozil playing. England need to embrace foreigners, and you like put your head in your hands. <laughs> Ozil was born in Germany, yeah. and they talk about France. People talk, about, oh, all these French, all these African players. That, that French squad, they were who won the '98 World Cup, 2000 um, European Championships, and you know played for them before and after. Most, well, all of them, all of them moved to France when they were children. Or were born in France. Just because somebody is black doesn't mean that you know they're not from France or French. And you know people acting as if like you know England have plenty of players whose whose parents are from different countries. Yeah. Like it's, it's yeah, like you say, it's an absolute non-issue. Where how did we get to this, Steve? Uh, Clinton Van Morrison. Clinton Morrison. And, right. and but with Clinton Morrison, yeah, you know you've got to have a rule. You know you've got to have a rule. Uh, what the eligibility criteria is and obviously in some cases it's going to be more legitimate than in others yeah. and with grandparents I don't know if it was us talking to you or Hassan probably Hassan and the penny just seemed to drop for him when I said that Lakeisha is eligible to play for Jamaica and oh, but only because of her grandparents her parents um, were born here right she was born here and but her grandparents so she has to go back to her grandparents the same way that Clinton Morrison goes back to his grandparents but Clinton Morrison like obviously, Lakeisha, um, she don't refer to herself as English. She don't like it when I call her English, which I do regularly. <laughs> I tell her if she's British. <laughs> Those two things are linked. Well, she, said, she said she's British. You know, there's a lot of black people do black British. Yeah, yeah. And my point is, if you're going to be British, you need to be English as well. Like, you can't be one without the yeah, other. Yeah. Which, you know, a lot of people disagree with, and it's fine. They're only words, really. I mean, well, they're not only words. But you know what I mean? It's all, you know, I'm not trying to force anything on anyone, really. Um, Self-determination. Yeah. To a degree, because you can't just you can't just make it if you're doing yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can understand why she identifies as Jamaican because she's black, and her, you know, at home, her mum, who is also black in it and born in England, you know, spends half the time talking in Patwa. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> kind of you know you can go that's legitimate to play for Jamaica. But then someone who's got one eye, like my granddad was Scottish, right, and uh, he died before I was born, right. That's my, but I'm eligible to play for Scotland. That's not really legitimate, is it? You'd probably get a game as well, man. <laughs> That's the good news. In my younger days, um, but Clinton Morrison falls into that category. I think. 
I don't know, maybe he knew his Irish grandmother, but clearly, like, he's a little bit Irish and more everything else. But, you know, I appreciate there is a positive side to it in that you kind of, by forcing people to have a black player on their team, <laughs> they kind of, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely. they're kind of having to get behind, like, say, Elisa Davy playing for Poland mm. is one of the obvious ones, Eduardo playing for Croatia. But, you know, we're massively sidetracked there. Yeah. When you started that section, you said you had a couple of players, and I was immediately going to correct you. But I thought maybe Jack will just include, include uh, Leroy Rosinha. I've got him on my yes! list. Yes! Brilliant, isn't it, Leroy Rosinha? Yeah. Uh, West Ham striker. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I only really know his management career, which I'd like to talk about. No, sometime. well, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk about his playing career. Uh, I remember him as a West Ham striker in the late 80s, early 90s. Didn't score a lot of goals. That was the telling thing about Leroy Rosino. As we've established, in those but days, strikers was, needed to score goals. I spent a lot of time for him as a player. He was always someone that I had uh, a lot of affection He's always for. seemed like a sweet guy on yeah, TV. And yeah. he seems to have spent the last few years campaigning against racism. You know, as a full-time job. Mm. Which not just, you know, I know obviously campaigning against racism is not a thing to do. But he seems like he's thrown himself into it, which is good. His son played for uh, Fulham at fullback for a while, didn't he? I don't know where he is now. But his management career, Steve, uh, is remarkable, really, isn't it? Yeah. In uh, May 2007. He, he was talkie manager up to 2006. Not sure if he got fired or quit. Probably fired. And in May 2007, he was appointed uh, talkie manager. And ten minutes later was fired. It's the shortest reign of a manager in the history of football, probably. Got to be. Yeah. Trem- I mean, I remember I remember watching it on TV. Like, there was like a press conference. And it was like breaking news. Leroy Senior has been named uh, talkie manager. And then, at the same time, I don't know if one depended on the other in some way, but the club were taken over oh, by yeah, a Yeah, that was essentially the thing. A concussion came in and bought the club and immediately deposed him and replaced him with someone else. I mean, Steve Claridge at Millwall, wasn't he... He got sacked before any competitive games, did he? In a similar sounds, situation. Yeah, it wasn't so. ten minutes. I mean, he, had, he probably got like one of those drill tops made up with his uh, initials. <laughs> Just give it to someone else. Have we got any SCs? Someone give Steve Clark a ring, see if uh, he's got a job. Managed to parlay uh, that experience into becoming international football manager. It's not bad, is it? Did he? He managed the Sierra Leone team for a very short time. Wow. Trying to find headphones in my bag at the moment, but I've just bought so much stuff at the pound shop. I got a insert code name of leads that I bought here. RJ45. That's what I was going to say. Code name. <laughs> <laughs> code name RJ45. Yeah, got some cars, table, water, biscuits, uh, crackers. That is currently one of the boxes is being used as a makeshift tripod. To keep the water on the table to get into the microphone. So not too far from the original purpose, which is good. The Tutenbeck Cup was originally a tournament at the Tutenbeck Golf Club. But in 1924, it was turned into a trophy that was awarded to the player from the United Kingdom or Republic of Ireland with the lowest score at the Open Championship. In golf, where the lowest score is the highest score. Exactly. Like a pointless, that TV show. Well, but also similarly in terms of pointless... What is the point of this trophy? Because here's my thing. If you haven't won the Open and they're giving you a trophy for something else, you're like, thanks, but I was sort of in it to win the other trophy. And if you win the Open and you still get the Tootin' Bet trophy, you're like, 
I'm all right. I've got the claret jug. That's the one I wanted. Maybe this is just an extra thing for me to carry. So it's quite similar if, say, the highest placed British player at Wimbledon, you know, pre Andy between Murray and uh, Fred Perry, yeah. when it was that you definitely weren't winning it. Yeah. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. So, like, it's almost like rubbing sort of Like, Colin Montgomery has famously never won a major tournament and has finished as the highest-placed British or Irish player at the Open a number of times. So he's got very few... much the Jimmy White of uh, golf. But Yeah, but Jimmy White, they weren't going up to him at the end and going, oh, by the way, you've won the Tootin-Bet Cup. The last thing Colin Montgomery was here was that he's won the Tootin-Bet Cup. He's like, I've got five of those. <laughs> he's another one, do I? I mean, the thing about golf is they do have random little... Particularly at the Open, it's a very old, prestigious tournament with a lot of tradition to it. So you have uh, awards like the Silver Medal, which is given to the highest-placed amateur player. But that's a prestigious thing. You're an amateur player playing with professionals. So finishing as high as possible amongst that group is uh, a, a rewarding of itself. But sort of going, you finish six, here's your cup, just seems very odd. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, pointless awards and cups in the world, Steve. Obviously, stay tuned to stuff like Hardcore End of Year Awards, where there will be <laughs> more. Well, that sporting talk, Steve, leads us into a final stop on the walking tour, presumably where Leroy Rossini was born. Well, I'm guessing it must be Jimmy White. Jimmy White was born at home in Street Form Road. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe Darren Bent. St George's Hospital. We've just had a coffee at the Marks and Spencer's Cow. I had a hot chocolate orange. So and that's uh, Steve banging it against the table there, regardless of any <laughs> kind of mic emphasize, It's a sound effect. It's one of the biggest teaching hospitals in the country. Often, if you talk to any kind of medical student, you ask them where they're studying, this seems to be the answer, doesn't it? Here or Kings would be the two big ones, I reckon. Open in 1954, relocating from Hyde Park Corner. And they've got quite a nice mural inside, haven't they? Mm, the the original building. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. That building. I've come up with four notable former student Steve I imagine you've probably got the same four I've got five so the Great. interesting thing is going to be which one have you got alright well if we kind of uh, rank them in reverse order yeah. I'm going to go with Edward Jenner and John Hunter together the difficulty here is this is this is my thing I drew a line where I'm like I've got three people that are incredibly important to the history of medicine in general uh, right yeah, who are associated yeah. with the hospital but when it was in the previous location so oh, it feels sort shoot. of tenuous I didn't realise that yeah that's the thing well, I was also like, Edward Jenner and John Hunter were their smallpox vaccine was that the previous St George's Hospital yeah I'll so, forget that but the then. thing is but the, I, I did have a check on the sign on the way in and there are Hunter and Jenner wards here so they, they're clearly yeah. sort of All right, legacy, so we can, we can mention but, them well we've mentioned them now let's move on to the next well, I think, I've, I think, so I've got two more well, well I think worth, worth saying Edward Jenner vaccination for smallpox Married John Chris Hunter Kardashian. John Hunter, the father of modern surgery and founder of the Hunterian Museum. So, you know, I love are... those titles. You know, Babbage, the father of computing. You know, <laughs> Faraday, the father of electromagnetism. <laughs> you know, Jack McEnroe, the father of podcasting. <laughs> Did you not have Henry Gray? No, tell me about him. Okay, if I say that Henry Gray was an anatomist, does that help at all? Gray's anatomy. Gray's anatomy. <gasps> that's wow, what I'm talking about. That's Gray's like anatomy. Standard textbook. Surgery. And smallpox vaccine. We'll have those. Well, we can't but have we can't miss the thing. That's true. So Gray, it's, it's yeah, Grey's Anatomy. I mean... Yeah, I mean, for people, if you ask, again, for people that don't know, right? Obviously, people know that's a TV show, Grey's Anatomy. But when you work at Waterstones and uh, you 
uh, I worked at Waterstones in Oxford Street, right? And it was quite close to the Gower Street branch. And uh, you get people that come into the wrong branch looking for the university bookshop. A medical student says, just like Grey's Anatomy, please. Yeah. It's the standard. Absolutely. It's like how my body works for adults. <laughs> so I reckon I know who your last entry is. I've got two more, two more. Oh, you got two more? I've got yeah. two more. So Harry Hill. Harry Hill, of course. The great stand-up comedian, um, TV presenter also. We've said this before on the show, right? I think it was when we were talking about the Blue Elephant Theatre in Campbell. Harry Hill was one of the all-time great stand-up comedians. He is incredible. Any of his stand-up specials, you know, all available on DVD, go to southfrontharcourt.com, click the Amazon link, or even if you find it on YouTube or whatever. He is a brilliant stand-up comedian, so funny. And, you know, some of his TV stuff is brilliant as well. Then there's some of the stuff that's very broad and people kind of have formed this impression about Harry Hill as if, like... He just gets up there and dances with people off of Coronation Street. Yeah. He did also write for The Sun for a little while, and I lost a lot of time from then, but it doesn't affect how funny he is. Yeah, it doesn't. It just affects how much I enjoy how funny he is. Studied neurology. Yeah. (laughs) Get him on the show, innit, at some point? Yeah. So I'm I'm getting... Well, there's a possibility that we might have the same last guy then. Dr. Humphrey Osmond. Yeah, gotta be, innit? Coined the word psychedelic pioneer of orthomolecular psychiatry which I was intrigued by and then you realise it's basically sort of diet based treatments. Is it? I thought yeah. we uh, helped identify the uh, adrenochrome uh, produced in the brain hallucinogen produced in the brain that causes schizophrenia and there was a link between that and uh, drugs That's one element of his work but the other element of his work was sort of like looking at uh, vitamins and nutrition and their links to mental health. Have you seen the clip, Steve, from 1955? A BBC clip of MP Christopher Mayhew taking 400 grams of mescaline? No, but I imagine it was being administered to him by this guy. Yeah, which I've seen the clip before. I wonder where I've seen it. I, th- I'm not I, mean, sure. that, that I think was... it might have popped up in the documentary because it was not shown on the BBC in the 50s like, because it was quite... You know, the guy was just like off his face. That was filmed, but that's not the most famous dose of mescaline that uh, Osmond handed out, of course. What, did he give John Lennon something or something? No, he when gave... When he visited, uh, when he played the Granada? He gave Aldous Huxley uh, a dose of mescaline and Aldous Huxley went wrote The Doors of Perception. Wow. Which also gave us The Doors, arguably. So, Imagine, imagine being the guy that uh, coined the phrase, psychedelic, and then you give someone uh, mescaline and they go on to coin the phrase doors of perception. I feel we do need to uh, make the point that although Osmond did study here, he left as soon as he could because he found the atmosphere stifling and uh, had to move to America and Canada to find more conducive areas to study in. But also worth noting, he did give volunteers mescaline here. So it wasn't like he oh, just, yeah. like, it yeah. wasn't like Harry Hill. Wait, did most of his work from the hospital? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Harry Hill probably... Do you reckon he ever did a turn at, like, a Christmas do or something? Ooh. And everyone was like, who was the best mm-hmm. one? Mm-hmm. Probably when, uh, you know, uh, Jenny started singing. What about that Harry Hill? Vote? He's all right. Shirt's too big. He won't make it. But Speaking yeah. of Harry Hill, right, there's a video on YouTube, right, I came across called... Uh, it's a documentary about two in a homemade documentary from 1978 called On Common Ground. And this guy, he's uploaded it in 2010. And it's, he's like a teenager in it. And he's shot on Super 8, but he's got like a kind of walk-around microphone. And he's described underneath what he used. And he's just walking around. And it's, it's like, 
it's just like an episode of South London Hardcore, <laughs> but on Super 8, and as if only you were doing it, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Like, just like the kind of straight history stuff. You'd love it. It's like an hour long. I only watched eight minutes. <laughs> but It does sound like an episode of South London Hardcore. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, put a link to that on the, uh, on the website, southlondonhardcore.com. But he's got this massive... Even in the description, he refers to his Harry Hill collar. Tooting is a multi-layered, fluidized ejector crater. Is this the intro? Is this what you're going to start <laughs> with? That's uh, on Mars, of course. Uh, in 2005, Peter Muginis Mark, the, at then he was the acting director of the Hawaii Institute of Geophysics and Planetology. And, uh, I'd like to be the anything of planetology. I just want to be the acting director or something. <laughs> I'll make you the acting director of South Island Hardcore. How's that? Brilliant. Can I be the planetology consultant? I thought you already were. Who's doing that? <laughs> Who's looking after the badger parade? That's it, Snoopy. You are. Yeah, the rules of uh, planetary nomenclature, Steve. Mars craters less than 60 kilometres in diameter have to be named after villages with populations of under 100,000. That's brilliant. Like, that they've that got these brilliant. rules. That, and you know what? I went to click on it. Just I, quickly, we haven't sent a man to Mars yet, but we've worked out how <laughs> we're naming the places. Yeah. I clicked on the link to uh, read all about the uh, uh, planetary nomenclature, and it's an American government website. So it says this website <laughs> is currently shut down as well. <laughs> the US government shut down. I didn't know it was going to affect the show. 